Welcome to our Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Connecting our Harvard Macy community and discussing health professions, education topics and literature. Leadership, innovation and silver linings. These are troubled times for us with COVID-19 across the world in healthcare and in health professions education. But there are also opportunities for silver linings. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm here on the Harvard Macy Institute podcast with none other than Liz Armstrong, the director of the Institute. How are you, Liz? I'm fine. Thank you, Victoria. And yourself? Uh, I am well and uh, certainly watching these troubled times with concern, but uh, in the spirit of our podcast today, also with a sense of opportunity. So I hope we get to talk about some of the positives that we can take from this situation. How have you been faring with it? Well, I think it's fair to say that we've all been challenged by the uh, pandemic, the tragedies around us, uh, and we must look forward. And I guess I feel very optimistic about a course on innovation, as I always have been, because I think innovation is what will bring us positive in a positive way into the future. And uh, given that we work with so many bright and creative people around the world, uh, it helps me feel even more optimistic. Excellent. All right. So listeners, a little bit of a roadmap through this episode. This is just prior to the Harvard Macy Institute uh, Leaders Program and scholars in the course will be listening to this as a pre-reading. But for those of you in our broader Harvard Macy community, we thought it was a chance to reflect on both the internal innovation that's happened as a result of the pandemic within the Harvard Macy Institute, but also maybe to hear some of Liz's thoughts, and admittedly some of mine, on where we think things might be going in the broader sense with uh, health professions, education and healthcare in general, and innovation. So with that introduction, Liz, I might get you to reflect a little on where we've come with the Leaders course, because of course, this is the time to shine, isn't it? If ever there was a time for a leadership, innovation, creativity agenda, Uh, and for the Harvard Macy Institute to be involved in it, it's now. So take us back through some history and bring us up to speed with uh, the present. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today, uh, Victoria. And as I think about where we've been, our history seems to be be quite relevant. Um, We began with a grant in 1994 to the Josiah Macy Foundation I was requested to write that grant to help Harvard Medical School disseminate what we had learned about our own so-called revolution in medical education. In the late 80s and early 90s, under the leadership of the then Dean Tosteson, we had reformed medical education in such a way that lectures were limited to one a day, students spent most of each day in small groups working on cases, and the rest of the uh, periods in the week would be early clinical contact. At the time, that was really seen as revolutionary in medical education, and Harvard was eager to share that learning with the rest of the world. Fortunately for me, I was the head of education at the time and was asked to write a grant to see how we might get supported to share that information. And as I reflected on what to write into the grant, 
it seemed to me that it would be inappropriate to simply use the time of people who might come from around the world to share with them what we learned, but to really invite them to think about creating their own innovations that clearly with the numbers of people who represent medical institutions worldwide, their intellect and their societies uh, could bring to bear many new ways of thinking about education, well beyond perhaps, certainly, what we were doing. Therefore, I wrote into the grant that we would design a course on innovation, which was really quite revolutionary at the time in and of itself, and that we would work with the business school. Very fortunately for me, I was introduced to Clayton Christensen, who in 1994 wasn't yet the famous professor at the Harvard Business School who had made famous the terminology for disruptive um, uh, innovation and disruptive technologies. He hadn't yet written his Innovator's uh, Dilemma. That came out in 1997. But he was taken in by the mission we had given ourselves to help people think about why they needed to innovate and how they might accomplish that. So starting in 95, he actually became our co-director, worked with us uh, until his untimely passing just a few months ago. But his work on disruptive innovation and his theories uh, lives on and certainly continues to stimulate our thinking. So just to sort of pause you there a little bit, um, that history is kind of interesting because it would have been very tempting just to write a paper in academic medicine about how great your medical school was uh, and its innovations and, hey, look at what we did. You should draw your own lessons. And I've seen and probably written a few of those myself. Uh, That must have taken a fair bit of thinking to actually say, no, no, we really want to make it hard for people. They have to come and take a course and think about their own uh, contexts and do a project. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot here, but that marks you and Clay as innovators yourself. Uh, What do you think were the characteristics that led you to do that? That's a great question. Um, As I sat and thought about this, reflecting on this story, I wondered about what was it within me at the time that uh, encouraged me to not just write the typical grant about how, what we had learned, what were the lessons learned, what was the data, but rather to invite people, challenge people to do something even better back home than we had done. How they would do it was going to be possibly worked on during the course stimulating their thinking through theories and various uh, strategies uh, would be certainly content in the course. And the thing that I, I kept coming back to about myself is that I guess I've always believed that there's, in education, there's no one way to do something. And in many fields, there's no one way to do it. And I have a lot of passion around saying, well, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be another way. Um, There are theories and principles of learning that I hold uh, dear and that we know uh, should be used from the research we have, but those theories can provide us with ways to design many strategies, not just the one that we at Harvard had invented. So while Harvard was excited about what was then called the new pathway, 
I kept saying our courses should be about new pathways and making it plural all the time. All right. So one of the things you've always taught me is that this is the difference between principle-driven activities versus format-driven. So if you're taking these principles into the course now, clearly the basis on which it was developed about having small group activities, uh, it being experiential, it being applied, people drawing their own conclusions, how will that actually play out in the online version? Hmm. Well, that's what we're going to find out, and we're very excited about it. Um, there will We will continue to have small groups. There will be the journal readings every morning, and we've had pre-course readings in the journal readings and journal groups every morning. We will use uh, breakout groups of four and five people with two and three faculty in each uh, to discuss the papers online. What, of course, will be missing is the cup of coffee in front of everyone at the table, but I'm assuming there will be lots of coffee on tables in front of people around the world. Uh, we will continue to benefit from an international audience who always bring multiple perspectives and also a group of diff different disciplines will be represented. So I'm encouraged by the fact that we continue to have an international audience and an interdisciplinary, interprofessional audience draw, really allowing us to draw on perspectives of so many different people. And I guess that's the other part of my own personality. I've never felt that one perspective was the answer, that one really needed to listen uh, carefully to multiple people, which is why I was always drawn to the case method. Case method teaching requires you to listen hard to what everyone is bringing to the table because you might learn something new and exciting from someone in a different environment, something that you perhaps had not thought of, and it could revolutionize the way you practice. All right. Well, we're going to come back to the course in a minute and talk about an exercise you've given the scholar, uh, scholars related to silver linings. But before we do that, I put you on the spot about your own innovator's DNA but uh, I know you want to bring up some issues related to innovation in general and Elon Musk, uh, since we're looking around for role models and ways of doing things. Tell us about that, Liz. Well, I have to admit that uh, I have been uh, sort of a follower of the space industry for uh, a long time now, have had the really uh, privilege of watching moon launches, shuttle launches, and just yesterday uh, in Florida, the, um, uh, the Falcon rocket took two American astronauts back to the International Space Station for the first time in over nine years. The rocket was made very special in many ways by the fact that it represented a collaborative effort between government, that is NASA for us here in the United States, and SpaceX, which is the company Elon Musk founded over 20 years ago, I wanted to sort of analyze, well, what was it about Elon Musk that allowed him, enabled him, encouraged him to uh, create this wonderful new technology for really the world to hopefully utilize? And so I, I've, I'd like to list for you uh, four, I think, important characteristics of Elon Musk as a leader and likely most innovators um, 
qualities as, as leaders. So the first is they have extraordinary passion. Uh, Musk, if you read his biography as I have, he was always, even as a child, asking the question, why? Why does it have to be that way? And when he looked at our own space industry, his passion about making it better was, well, why do we have to waste the booster rocket and let it just drop into the ocean? Why does it have to cost so much to send an astronaut into space? Why does the capsule have to be built the way it is or the rocket built the way it is? And so he starts always with the passion to understand why something has to be the way it was and could we make it better? My goodness, near and dear to my heart. The second quality that seems to be striking as you look at Musk's uh, history biography is incredible perseverance and persistence. He had 20 years of failures and obstacles before the successful launch yesterday. Almost everything that could go wrong with his rockets that, as he was building them did. So it takes persistence and perseverance and time. Yeah, and I think this is really important, isn't it? Often people look at success and think, well, that's a combination of luck and brilliance. But I think the embracing failure is something that many people find difficult. Uh, and you're right, it's persistence and having a bit of clarity about where they're going as well. And uh, maybe we'll get to Mars. Yeah, we will. I have a feeling we will. Um, the third quality that strikes me is uh, one of the way in which he took responsibility on the first day they attempted the launch, which was a few days ago on Wednesday, but the weather kept them from actually launching it, he made a very interesting statement that I think all leaders should think about. He said, if this goes wrong, you all need to look at me. It's, it would be my fault because I was the lead engineer on this. If this goes right, you look at my team and give them all the credit. And I think that is a true leader. It is about the team getting it right and pulling it together and then taking personal responsibility for things that may go wrong. And the last thing I would share with you is actually not what a lot of literature might say about leaders, but I think he's got a sense of humor and I think his team has a sense of humor. I don't know if everyone knows that what the name of the barge is that sits in the Atlantic that receives, if you will, the booster rocket that comes back to Earth safely and gets reused. They actually named that barge, Of Course We Still Love You. So here we are with probably the most sophisticated technology in space aviation, uh, taking men to the space station, hopefully off to the moon eventually and Mars, and we can still have a sense of humor about ourselves as human beings and the work we do. So in, in essence, those are my four bullet points about uh, Musk. Uh, he starts with passion and asking the why question, perseverance, that is that takes a long time uh, to see success, personal responsibility, and a little bit of humor. Mm, absolutely. And what's important is not just what you listed, but what you didn't list, which is perfection. He's not perfect. Uh, and I think there's plenty in his biography and elsewhere that would realize that. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, we often think that leaders, 
need to be perfect, have perfect personalities. Absolutely not. In many ways, they have to be stubborn, maybe stubborn. Some of them may come off as rude. I mean, Steve Jobs certainly came off to many people as a very unusual type of person. Probably Elon Musk does too. But I guess I'd like to always look at what's the skill set that the person brings to the table and do they really have the determination to get it done? Uh, we need work to be done. We don't need people who are just going to talk about it or write about it. If we're going to make the world a better place for our patients and our students and the societies we live within, uh, we must take action and, and push ourselves into hard, hard work. None of this was easy. And I don't think innovations are easy. You're listening to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Huh. Yes. All right. Well, that's probably a good segue to bring us back to this course because you've challenged the scholars to offer up some uh, silver linings that they've found in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, either as health professions educators or as clinicians. And uh, I understand you got back some interesting responses. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the exercise uh, and then what you got back? Sure. So as we thought about reconfiguring our live June course to one that would be offered online and in the midst of a pandemic, it seemed very clear to all of us that we would need to change some of the sessions very dramatically. And ever the educator within me said, we should start off with where the students are. This is a course should never be about the faculty. The course should be about what do the students need where are they now and where do we as the faculty hope to take them? And so it, it seemed to me that given that all of the scholars who are coming to our virtual course are living within, the acade within academic centers in which they are caring for patients, they are attempting to teach in all different ways, I was hoping that we could start in a positive way with them and ask them to think about the silver linings in the COVID crisis that they have experienced to date. And it was very interesting, the results I got back and the positive things that they have discovered about teaching online was truly remarkable in that it was described in their stories one right after the other as beneficial, the COVID experience that forced them to teach online created beneficial opportunities for them to enhance human-to-human -human interaction. Pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? It's totally counterintuitive. And the things they wrote about, Victoria, enhanced teamwork. We found ways in which some residents could stay at home in a safe setting and help us with the clinical work online while a smaller group of residents would be in the hospital, having therefore more time to be at the bedside of patients. They described telemedicine in ways in which made telemedicine more patient care. This is one of my favorite quotes from one of the cases. Whereas in the past, patients would come to our house, we now enter theirs. Wonderful. House calls online. They talked about better ways they're socializing with their colleagues. When we were forcibly disconnected, we discovered opportunities to create new connections with each other. 
We worked on new ways to develop CME that challenged the status quo. And we hope that we'll never go back to the status quo, but that rather we will proceed with the newer ways of teaching and learning so that the content we deliver may actually reside and stick with the individuals we are teaching. This is uh, technology-enabled, but somehow more humanity-centred is the theme that I'm, uh, or the message that I'm getting from those examples that you're giving. We kind of wonder why we didn't do this before, what was getting in the way of us doing that. And I guess this is the nature of uh, change efforts, uh, is that we need a bit of this sense of urgency and a crisis and something that really makes us sit back and look at what we're doing. Exactly. I mean, I must be honest with you, as we approach our virtual course, the one th- the one item that comes up all the time in all of the faculty meetings we're having is that how are we going to create the Harvard Macy community online? How will we create that sense of human to human interaction? So reading these cases actually gave me a bit more optimism again. Uh, so we'll see. I think they're going to be trade-offs. a nice point to then diverge a little bit and think about the concepts of creativity and innovation. And if I reflect on what's been happening during this pandemic and watching around me, uh, it's been fascinating, hasn't it? We've, we've clearly seen in many industries people like General Motors retooling to make ventilators, distilleries making hand sanitizer. Uh, there are people who are clever looking for opportunities out there. And I've certainly observed some of those in health professions education as well. Uh, again, enabled by what we've got in terms of technology and social media. And in fact, the uh, Canadian Emergency Medicine Group actually built a one of their blog posts where they invited people to put in innovative ideas that they had done in response to the pandemic and dozens of entries there about clinical things as well as educational things. Uh, that said, I also saw some interesting work where Maybe changes were made that hadn't been tested, Uh, gadgets, devices, things that seemed like they were good ideas. But, of course, the trouble with rapid change is it can also be a little bit unfettered and sometimes what we come up with are not just imperfect but, in fact, uh, problematic. How do you see us balancing this, Liz, if we're looking at new and exciting ways of responding in health professions education? How are we going to get this balance between doing something good and uh, not not potentially doing harm? Yeah, another great question. It's, it's actually a question I've been struggling with for quite a few years, long before this crisis. And that is, I have worried about how our environments actually inhibit innovation because appropriately so in many ways, we must care about safety and and the safety and well-being of our patients. At the same time, if we always resort back to, well, that's the way it's done, we will never have the breakthroughs that will bring us the cures that we want or the uh, solutions to problems that we seek, we need to run those experiments in safe ways. I don't have a clear answer on this. I don't 
I don't, I'm looking forward, forward to someone working that out, but it seems very clear to me that we are going to have to take some risks. And I think we are beginning to do that because this crisis that we're living uh, through right now. Yeah. And I think some of this is about recognizing and naming the distinction between taking a risk and offering up an innovation versus declaring that something is now an evidence-based intervention. And I know some of my colleagues involved in research have been throwing up their hands a little bit because someone gets an idea that a drug might work and uh, wants to just throw it out there without recognising that, in fact, we have a very good discipline that we need to match with our risk-taking in relation to the process by which we evaluate, for instance, medical interventions. And I'd argue the same about educational interventions. And it's just, I think, about recognising the distinction between when you are going on a little adventure and when you can actually say, no, this will work and we should adopt it more widespread. And we're prepared to put uh, now a guy or a girl at the top of the rocket because it's safe enough. Some of those examples you gave before looked at the models of healthcare delivery, uh, things like telemedicine, things like uh, having more patient-centred approaches, things like uh, batching residents to attend as cohorts uh, while others are able to be at home. But what about these models of health professions education? Should we be looking at some more profound ways that we should be doing that, Liz, and uh I know that we've talked before about what is the role of medical students and we see across the world some are not going to clinical rotations at all, whereas some are getting the experience of a lifetime watching people adapt and bring the best of their health professional uh, training and skill to the present crisis. Any thoughts on these actual models of health professions education? Right, right. Uh, Another thorny issue with no clear one answer. But again, there have got to be multiple ways to look at this problem. As I sit back now and think about what we have done, at least in America, uh, in asking all medical students to basically stay home through all of this, I have to wonder, in retrospect, if we have done for some, a bit of a disservice. It seems to me that medical students have chosen to pursue one of the most noble professions ever. Uh, They care about people. They want to make people better. They want to deal with the challenges of prolonging life, improving life. They are bright young people who have many, many perspectives on why we're doing certain things the way we are. And I guess what I wonder about is if we could have found a way to safely engage medical students at different stages in their medical education career in the workplace, safely in the workplace, would they have been able to see new ways of practicing that we as practiced physicians were unable to see. And as I thought about my reflections on that, I'm reflecting on a Nobel laureate, Joe Murray, who graduated from Harvard Medical School. And upon starting his internship, the the year of his internship, just fresh out of school, uh, World War II was going on in earnest. And he was sent to 
uh, work in a clinic. I believe it was in New Jersey. And it was a clinic that was caring for all of the burn victims who were coming back from Europe, the soldiers who were coming back who had been badly burned. He spent several years in that burn clinic. That was not his original intention. And he worked with the victims and worked with plastic surgeons and and saw the power of skin grafts. If we fast forward his story, he used what he learned about skin grafts to be the first surgeon to perform a kidney transplant ever in 1960 at the Brigham and Women's, for which he received the 1990 Nobel Prize in Physiology. So there's a a wonderful story of how a student being exposed to something in some ways quite unexpected challenged his thinking to that resulted in a wonderful breakthrough for mankind. Yeah, so this is so instructive, isn't it? And you're right, one of, I hope that it invites reflection on the role of medical students in the healthcare system because at the moment their role is as trainee doctors, which largely makes them non-essential at times of crisis, where I was like to think and drawing on writing of many people, including Catherine Lucy from University of California, San Francisco, thinking about how we actually embed medical students as part of the healthcare workforce, doing jobs that aren't just in the traditional uh, narrow trajectory towards being a doctor and rather thinking about their role as healthcare providers in a much broader sense. And then they would be essential in a pandemic because they would have skills that we needed and in the process, hopefully um, pick up the kind of inspiration and knowledge and context that you're talking about with that fabulous example. Well, precisely, precisely. They are very bright young people that we who we take into our medical schools around the world, and they've got the passion to make a difference. I think placing them more solidly in the workforce could be quite beneficial to all of us. All right, Liz. Well, sadly, we'll have to wrap up this conversation at some point. Uh, but I just wanted, if you wanted to make any closing comments, um, either for the course attendees or indeed for the broader Harvard Macy community facing a lot of challenges right now and uh, messages for them about innovation, creativity, uh, and maybe also just empathy. Well, that's, uh, well, certainly as I've thought about the message of our course this year and for our community, it's again one of optimism. And that is if we can take a serious look at the opportunities that have been provided and the silver linings that we've seen in some of these cases, what will our job look like to sustain those innovations? So both as we look to the future, we need to think about what will our organizations need to do to enable the, the, our ability to sustain the innovations that we think were successful and at the same time create the new innovations without hopefully another crisis. And I have a bit of a worry because there's a tendency in large organizations uh, to spring back to what they feel most familiar with, the culture that they um, feel that they own or have, the business model that they had in the past uh, is disrupted in many ways. 
by some of these innovations. That's true for telemedicine. That's true for online learning. And the challenge, I think, therefore, to sustain the innovations that have been created during these last few months that people have spoken so positively about in the cases we've received is really one in which we as a community have to think about how will we move our organizations in such a way that the culture, the models, the strategies will accept the innovation. And then secondly, even more challenging will be how will our organizations continue to invite us to innovate? Because there is no one way to do something. There's always going to be a better way. And that's why you're all scientists. A scientist is always looking for a better way. And that's what Harvard Macy is about. Excellent. Well, what a fabulous note to finish on. Uh, Harvard Macy listeners, you've heard it here. Uh, launches into space, new ways of doing Harvard Macy leaders courses, and some reflections on uh, how we might respond best to this pandemic. Thank you again, Liz, for your time. Uh, looking forward to hearing how the course goes in all its glorious imperfections, uh, but I've certainly got some confidence that it's going to be a great experience for those who are attending. Thanks again for your time. Well, thank you, Victoria, and we look forward to seeing you, so to speak, in our course working with us. Uh, thank you for doing this podcast with us and also for teaching with us. You are certainly a role model for us all. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Uh, well, this is Liz and Vic signing off for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. Mm -hmm.